What fish has been swimming the oceans for over 400 million years, has multiple rows of teeth, hunts using electroreception, and whose presence is vital for healthy oceans? You guessed it, sharks, the apex predators of the big blue. Welcome to Rewildology, the nature podcast that explores the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I am your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Today, I'm sharing with you another compilation mini-sode. In this 30-minute information-packed episode, you'll hear from two badass women shark biologists who have been starred on the show. Frida Laura, PhD, shark researcher, tour guide, and co-founder of Orcas in Mexico, and Camelia Arnes, hammerhead and thresher shark researcher in the Galapagos Islands. Both discussed the insightful studies they conducted to understand shark behavior and movement patterns in their study region and share lots of facts about sharks, some of which may surprise you. Grab your virtual snorkel gear and embark on an educational journey into the blue depths to understand the lives of Galapagos sharks, silky sharks, hammerhead sharks, and more. Oh, but really quickly, before I let you dive into today's mini-sode, be sure to give the show some love, however you want, some suggestions by leaving a rating review on your favorite podcast app, engaging with the show on social media, and signing up for the newsletter at the website. Also, if you're interested in volunteering with Rewildology, head on over to Rewildology.com and check out volunteer opportunities under the About tab. The deadline to apply is February 19th, which is right around the corner. All right, everyone, please enjoy this toothy, salty, and enlightening episode with Frida and Cami today on Rewildology. First up today is Frida Laura, PhD, from episode 116. In this clip, Frida shares her research with the Galapagos sharks and silky sharks in a Mexican protected marine reserve. Well, for my PhD, I, I actually, it was interesting because I, I went to Mexico City with my sister. It was her graduation. Uh, she's a doctor. So I saw this talk that my supervisor was giving in, in, a, in, like in a dive shop in Mexico City, like super random. But I saw that he was talking about bull sharks in, in the Caribbean and everything, and I was like, I want to go. And I went with my sister, and I, I normally don't talk to presenters because I'm kind of shy. <laughs> but that day, I was like, my sister was like, no, you have to go and, and introduce yourself. So I went with Mao and I say like, ah, hi, nice to meet you, Mao. Uh, I, I just came back from Seychelles. And I, I learned this technique that is very, very useful and we haven't used it in Mexico. And maybe you are interested and we can talk about it. And he said like, yes, I really like that idea. I have a project that is starting in Revilla Gijedo in Socorro Island. So yes, he sent me an email. And that's how everything started. So uh, I start talking to Mao. Uh, we start like discussing the ideas. And basically what we were trying, it, it was to find distribution patterns. So basically how sharks are using a national park or an archipelago. So you have four islands in this park and in each place you have different environments. You have like very, very flat sandy bottoms that are perfect now we know. 
for tiger sharks. So we found tiny little baby tiger sharks that are almost impossible to see diving because they are super, super shy. And we found like steep walls full of silky sharks now. So we start like seeing how all these species, because in Mexico, Revillagigedo is called the Mexican Galapagos, because it's super diverse. We find around 20 species of sharks in, in each of the dive sites. So seeing how they share the environment no? and how they use it and where you find the juveniles, where you find the adults, just by using the cameras. So it was a very powerful technique. And I spent basically four years going every month to deploy the cameras and in different places. You you cannot select specific areas. You can have like some samples in each island, but it has to be random. So basically you put them everywhere <laughs> and you start like seeing patterns, no? Like some areas are more diverse. You have like more like I see them like airports, no? So you have some international airports that are super busy with more species. And then you have areas that are not diverse and they are like more quiet and not a lot of fish and sharks. So yeah, it was really, really interesting. But at the same time, I was feeling like there was not enough that for a project that was four years long, I felt like we had to include something else to tell the story. So that's why I asked Mao and, and my supervisor to use other kind of technique. And I, I combined the information that we had from the cameras with telemetry. So we were using all the data from sharks that were tagged in Revilla Gigedo and seeing how they were traveling from Revilla to the other marine reserves in the Eastern Tropical Pacific. So we have data from Cocos, Clipperton, Galapagos, Malpelo, all these places, no? And it was really cool because they, the researchers in the other countries allowed me to use the information to start seeing these connectivity patterns, no? So we have connectivity that can be related to the, the genes. So it's genetic connectivity, but we also have physic, physical connectivity. So real movements of animals traveling between each place and each marine reserve. So yeah, in, in the PhD, basically I use tons and tons of detections of silkies and Galapagos sharks and seeing how they were moving between each of the, of the areas on each of the island. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, have two, <laughs> I have two questions. Yeah. One, the first one, I want to go back to your airport analogy, which I thought was mm-hmm. so, so fun. A big, yeah. you know, Heathrow or, you know, LAX yeah, exactly. or these, these big, J&B, these massive international airports that everyone has to fly through whether or not they want to. You got to go through that massive airport to get to that part of the world. Or a little local one that has like three gates and you're super bored twiddling your thumbs. Mm. So what's the difference when you were starting to look at the data? Why were there shark or like, why were there underwater international airports and why were there just like little ones where there really wasn't much action going on? Was there anything obvious that was the difference between the activity or was it temporal? Was it different times of year or why were, why was the wildlife using these different spots differently from what you found? So to determine that I use network analysis that basically are the same as what we use sometimes for internet or like servers where you put dots and each dot is one of the dive sites or one of the receivers. So I had like, literally networks of different movements between the sharks and how they were like traveling between each of the places 
and then you can find bigger circles or bigger airports <laughs> and then the smallest <laughs> ones are the ones that they don't travel that much and what what we have two options one is that naturally some areas are more diverse and they have like steep walls or like a lot of current so for example darwin arch in galapagos is that kind of a specific place that has cleaning stations it has a lot of praise it's a perfect place for adults to hang out and reproduce so you have these seamounts or places that are uh, with a lot of productivity and obviously sharks can get advantage of being around their, that area and you can have other places that are like more stable like sandy bottoms that probably have less current and probably less praise for the sharks so they don't spend a lot of time in those places and the other thing is also the impact, the human impact. So mm. you can have areas that have been strongly impacted by, for example, trolling or uh, industrial fishing, where you have less praise and or is already impacted by by this different um, destruction, no? the, the habitat destruction. So these places could be less important by through the time, no? So for example, here in the Gulf of California. We have a very famous seamount that is called El Bajo. El Bajo, back in the 70s, used to be even better than Galapagos, like tons wow. and tons of sharks. Like in a normal dive, you could see schools of 200 hammerheads. <gasps> and nowadays, uh, it's almost empty. Like you don't see any shark. And what we found it is that in the 90s, the Mexican government allowed industrial fishing to come and catch everything. Even like Japanese or people from other countries were allowed to come and catch sharks there because we thought we had a very, very diverse and uh, rich environment that never will empty. So mm. we allowed them to catch with huge nets a lot of sharks. And now, obviously, the species had some consequences of that. And it's, it's slowly recovering. We are seeing more and more sharks but it's not the same as it used to be. So now we know that we have to protect this area. And Revilla Gijedo, where I did the PhD, is a perfect example of like large, fully and highly protected areas where no fishing is allowed. And what it happens is that the environment has a chance to recover and then help the other environments or the areas outside to, to also recover. So actually the industrial fishing is like getting more yellowfin tuna. And the sharks inside that area are getting bigger and healthier so they can travel to other places and recover other airports. <laughs> <laughs> I love that description. Oh, it's yeah. so good. It's so good. Yeah. Where's all the action happening? Like sharks yeah. want to be there. I don't, I don't blame them. So, uh, and, and next continuing on to that, it's all part of the same, all of your research. The, what movement patterns did you find? Well, okay. Okay, I have a question and a question. So <laughs> you, you mentioned that you, you, you focus on silky sharks and Galapagos sharks, which yeah. why those two species? I mean, I know when it comes to research, you got to focus on something. Otherwise, you're just like, you, you'll be there for the rest of your life trying to figure out all the sharks, everything. And we have to graduate with a PhD at some time. So why those two sharks? And maybe some cool facts about them, if you wouldn't mind sharing. And then what did you find? How were they moving around? How were they using this the air your research area in their airports accordingly yes yeah, so for the phd we selected two species that were present in all the national parks in the area in the region 
So Galapagos and Silky Sharks are present in the Gulf of California, obviously in Revilla Gigedo, but they are also present in Clipperton and in the Galapagos. We have other species, for example, dusky sharks. They, they are not very common in the southern part of the, of the eastern tropical Pacific. So, and silver tips, they don't tend to go to the shore areas, to the coastal areas. So we needed to find two species that were present in all the national parks because potentially they had the chance to travel between the different places. So these two species are, silky sharks are one of the most caught species in the world. They, they, they catch tons and tons of silky sharks because it's a pelagic species, so they tend to be very related to yellowfin tuna, and obviously they are target for the industrial fishing boats. So, uh, for example, there is a study from FAO that shows that for every ton of tuna, they catch around 100 silky sharks. Mm. And some of the crew in these tuna fishing boats caught the fins, and they, they sell these fins for the Asian market. So it's not the target for the boat, but they still are doing a huge impact for the species. And it, yeah, it was interesting to have a very pelagic species that we knew it was traveling a lot. If you see the anatomy, they are travelers. Like mm. The fins are very long and very elongated, so that means that they are made and designed for traveling. And then you have Galapagos sharks that are more like isolated. They normally tend to be more in, in these uh, oceanic islands, and they travel, but they are more resident most of the time. So we wanted to compare two species that had different patterns. And what was very surprising was that we were able to see how sharks were traveling, obviously between the Gulf of California to, to Revilla Gigedo, but also from Revilla Gigedo to Clipperton and then Galapagos. So they can do migrations of 3,000 kilometers. Wow. And the, the other interesting thing is why they do it, no? Yeah. So we think it's a lot about connectivity, no? So if you have different genes and different populations, then your population is stronger. So probably the, the females are moving and the males are moving between different countries and different reserves just to have that diversity of genes between different places. So cool. So cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that makes, that makes total sense why you chose those different species. That, 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 that was really helpful. Thank, thanks for exploring that. And you also just mentioned something, just these different lifestyles and that these sharks just naturally adopt. Like this is just how they evolve. Like, you know, the silky shark sounds like they're more in open ocean versus the Galapagos sharks, which may be more resident in near things. And we had this long conversation the last time you and I sat down, and I would love if you could talk about it a little further. So we talked a lot about the open sea, the open ocean versus coastal regions and how these have very different consequences for both conservation and lifestyle and just all this stuff when it comes to sharks. Could you possibly explain this a little further? Why? Because, you know, we think of the big blue and everything that's in it is just dealing with the same shit, but that's not actually the case at all. So what is the difference for sharks that are in the open ocean versus coastal regions? And is one of these groups having more issues than the other or are they both just not doing well? Well, yes, as, as you say, <laughs> um, what we have found is that most of the species are already not doing very well. Like 70% of the sharks in, around the world are on under kind of a, a risk of a, a extinction. 
And this is because the huge impact that we have, especially from the industrial fishing, that is affecting many of the key areas where the sharks are reproducing or feeding or doing something part of their life cycle. We have seen, for example, that hammerheads, they use a lot of the mangroves or the shallow areas to grow. And then when they get big enough, they start swimming and going through like more oceanic islands or seamounts where they can find bigger prey and also find a mate. But what we found is that sometimes, especially in Mexico, it's easier to protect big areas in the oceanic environment because it was just used by industrial fishing, but there were not other stakeholders. And it was easy to to work with the government and try to deal with the industrial fishing and find an agreement with them to protect a huge area. But when we talk about coastal communities and protecting areas where you have thousand fishermen relying on that resource, it's a different story. So what we found in the last years is that we also need to protect the coastal areas because a lot of the species are coming here in the Gulf of California to give birth and have the babies. And the babies rely a lot into into mangroves and the shallows. So now that's how the second part of my work is, is now, is to focus on working with the coastal communities and trying to find ways where they understand the importance of the area and we find ways to have new opportunities for them so they can help us to conserve the sharks. Our next sharky expert is Camelia Arnez from episode 110. In this clip, she shares her research with hammerhead sharks in the Galapagos Islands. Uh, And in case you missed that episode, this girl free dives with sharks. She is such a badass, as you're going to soon hear. After I finished the Seamount project, I applied for a grant to study hammerheads. There are a lot of hammerheads in the Galapagos Islands. That's actually the northern part of the Galapagos, Darwin and Wolf Islands, are known as the sharkiest place on earth, like one of the sharkiest places on earth. And there was a study in 2016 that determined that this islands, these tiny islands in the northern part, host one of the largest biomass of shark species in the world. So if you go dive in there, you would see big whale sharks, like potentially pregnant big mama whale sharks and schools of hammerheads, schools of silky sharks. So I applied for this grant to study the ecology, feeding ecology of the hammerhead sharks because this, this wasn't done before in the Galapagos. There was a big knowledge gap in that area, especially not exactly what they were feeding off, but how they were using the reserve, like how they were foraging, what strategies were they using, what areas were they exploding, and also like what their niche was. So yeah, I got this grant. I received this grant in 2019. I was super excited. And as part of this, we had to go to the northern part of the of the reserve and free dive among hammerhead sharks because That's they're super unbelievable. They're, they're super shy. If you go with the scuba gear, they would go away because they don't like the bubbles. So you had to be like, like a ninja underwater with a, <laughs> using, using a Hawaiian sling that had a modified tip and it had a biopsy dart. So you were, you were free diving with this Hawaiian sling and then you would like throw the sling and puncture or like 
puncture the base of the dorsal fin, but it was a tiny, it was like a mosquito bite for them. It didn't hurt. And we obtained like tiny samples of their muscles. And, and then we took it to the lab. So a lot of like feeding studies look at, at, their, at the species stomach content, but because we're in a marine reserve and in a very protected area, and also because I don't condone like invasive studies, like I don't like killing animals for the sake of science. There are other ways now, especially with technology, so there's no need to do that, really. We looked at the stable isotopes of the samples, which are this elements of these very stable elements that you can study. So everything's made out of isotopes, as we are all made out of atoms. And the isotopes are just another versions of the atoms. They have different neutrons. So you have lighter isotopes and heavier isotopes. So we look at carbon and nitrogen isotopes that would tell us different things about the animals. So like if we look at carbon isotopes, we would know if they were feeding in the coastal area or like how deep were they feeding or if they were using more oceanic areas. And then if we look at the nitrogen isotopes, that will tell us how high or like their position on the tropic web and if they're feeding down the foot web or up the foot web. So that gave us a lot of information. And there was another layer to the study. So we did this for four years. It was a four-year study. And during that four-year period, an El Nino happened and also at La Nina. So we could see how their strategies and their feeding behavior shifts with climatic events and the climatic variability. So that was an awesome thing to learn and understand. So I had a lot of fun doing this study. Okay, we're going to dive in. Oh, I, got, I got to stop saying that. Okay, I really want to understand this further. How exactly does, you know, a heavier or lighter nitrogen or heavier or lighter carbon tell you these things? Like, like how, does, how does that work? Yeah, so it's based on the principle that you are what you eat. We are what we eat. So we incorporate all the chemicals and all the information of the food we ingest and we store it in our tissues. And you have, you have this light and, heavy, light and heavy isotopes. And so the ratio of them will tell you a lot of information. So for example, lighter isotopes in the water, lighter oxygen isotopes, they evaporate with temperatures. So then you, you, then you know that if you take a sample, you you might be you might find more heavy isotopes so like this this proportion or this ratio tells you a lot of information so if you have higher carbon readings that will tell you that the the organism are feeding or the species is feeding closer to coastal habitats because coastal habitats are super enriched in carbon they're highly highly enriched in carbon and as you move to offshore environments carbon signatures decreases so that that's how you read it that's how we interpret the results so we look at this ratio and then with nitrogen as well the the predators take in the nitrogen of the their prey so the higher you are in the food chain the the higher your levels of nitrogen will be so for example an orca or like a white shark which are super top predators they're going to have crazy high nitrogen levels in their tissues so that's that's how it works. Yeah, I got you. OK, no, that's really helpful. So 
if they're feeding, tell me if I've interpreted this correctly, correctly. So if they would have high levels of carbon, then they were feeding more towards the coast. So does that mean they were eating more just like kind of like lower bottom fish, like fish? And then instead of versus maybe like a tuna that's higher up the ecosystem. Um, I don't know if they eat tuna. That was just a guess. But meaning like because I, I specialize with predators on land. So I guess I'm just trying to make yeah. an analogy in the water. So like. So, like, let's say that we have our top dog, Hammerheads, and they were eating, like, meso predators. Maybe that would be, like, a tuna or something versus maybe, like, the herbivores, <laughs> which are, like, the bottom <laughs> fish. I know that this isn't a correct analogy, but I, I'm trying to understand in the way my biologist brain works. Is that kind of similar or or not? <laughs> yeah. So, as sharks, as other animals, sorry, as lions, if they, they also have, like, a favorite prey item. So, for example, if a lion is, they have gazelles all the time around them, that's that, and they have other animals, they're going to choose the gazelle. They're always going to go for their preferred prey items. So sharks are like that as well. And hammerheads love squid. With, with is also with squid is also, it's not like down the food web. It's like a mesopredator predator as well, squid. And they take vertical migrations at, at night. And so the sharks love squid. And also... They're highly rich in oil and nutrients, so that's their preferred prey. They love it. Although they can eat other things, they can eat anything, right? Like sharks are apex predator, and they can. They are like the white cells of the sea. They maintain the health of the ocean, mm. but they love squid. So when there's when the conditions are are good and temperatures are stable, and it's actually kind of like a little bit colder than usual and nutrient rich waters, there are a lot of squid available and hammerheads will stay in one place so their niche is very very narrow and it's very very specialized they would just feed on squid and they're happy on, happy to eat squid uh, but then when conditions change and the water gets warmer and the squid is not readily available they might like go deeper they might not undertake this migration and sharks cannot find their preferred prey they would venture into they would take these big migrations and go and feed somewhere else and they could eat maybe herbivores maybe like other organisms down the food web so that's how that's how they behave so their niche become they become more generalist and opportunistic and they actually they actually might be feeding on anything they could find but not like highly nutrient praise it's just like anything that they encounter so this this shift might actually also alter their nutrient intake and their overall health oh that makes total sense thank you so much for helping my brain also understand this and hopefully for anyone listening too so then super cool then that you had a la nina and an el nino during this study so what did you find yeah so we found that 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 they're super resilient as soon as their conditions conditions in their environment change they have so they have very they have a preferred temperature and a preferred prey, like I mentioned, but and they're happy if the conditions are stable, but as soon as they change for so when El Nino happened, they just they just went away. They just went off the coastal environments, they went outside the the Galapagos Marine Reserve boundaries, they were feeding in pelagic ecosystems, depleted in carbon, and and yeah, they just their diet shifts from being specialized to being generalist opportunistic feeders when conditions are harsh. They just have to adapt, but they're very resilient and very flexible. So as soon as they 
conditions change, they, they go away. But during La Nina years, so in 2018 was the La Nina year, and they were, their niche became very sp specialized again. They were even swift. They were super happy. They just stay in coastal environments. So mostly around the northern part of the Galapagos, they just stay there in this, this tiny, around these tiny, tiny islands that we know world islands. So yeah, there's no need to move or go anywhere else if you have everything you need and everything you like right where you are. So that's what happened. And we could demonstrate that after these four years studying, after looking at their isotopes. So yeah, that was our results. And it was, it was super exciting. It was the first, first of its kind kind of study for the, for the Galapagos Marine Reserve. That was very helpful as well. Especially these studies are very helpful for the Galapagos National Park Directory. They plan the zoning scheme and they are, they, they are the ones that have to divide the area, the Galapagos Marine Reserve and actually designate areas like fishing areas or tourism areas or like no-take areas. So they use this, these sort of studies to be able to designate. Yeah, so we, after this study, they could, they could say, oh, we know that this species is using this coastal environment for this part of the reserve. Maybe we can protect that even further and take other measurements. So this, this type of studies help to conserve these populations as well. So maybe could you like give us just like some spew, some really cool facts about hammerheads? Sure. Uh, so hammerheads, they, they have this hammerhead-like shaped head and they're actually the, the, mo the most, I would say like evolved sharks of all. Their detection system is super advanced and they actually use their hammerhead head, their hammer, their hammerhead yeah, <laughs> to like pin, pin, pin down some of their prey. So there was actually a photo taken recently of a um, great hammerhead shark pinning down an eagle ray or like a ray <gasps> what? just on the, on the ground and just like with his head, like an actual hammer. So they use, they use their head as a tool to eat, which is crazy. And they, and they can, they can navigate. They, they're super sensitive to electromagnetic fields and electromagnetic signals. And actually they use seamounts. So this is how seamounts and sharks are related. So hammerheads use seamounts as underwater um, highways to guide their big migrations. And it's crazy because scientists have put tags on them to see how they move and how, where they go. And actually you can see the, the tracks from the, their tags. They do like 90 degrees turns. Like they, they, they like swim straight if they're following the seamount chain. And if they, if it changes, they actually will like completely turn and follow the seamount chain. So seamounts are like their highway. Whoa, that's so cool. So like <laughs> all of your things are just like naturally coming together. That's yeah, amazing. It's like connecting line. But, but they're highly, they're overfished because they take this long migrations. They go outside reserve and they get caught at a spycatch, but also they're targeted for their fins. And like this, which is so sad, like a hundred million sharks die like, every year for their fins and hammerheads are not excluded so mm. so yeah and also because they take these long migrations so there are some studies that that demonstrate that they go from for example they they go from galapagos to cocos in costa rica and to malpelo island in colombia they there's this triangle that they use they move around but and they also go to the mainland in south america to 
give birth. So there you can find baby hammerhead sharks in mainland Ecuador as well and in mainland Colombia. So that's that makes them more vulnerable as well because they if they feed in one place, they reproduce and in another place and they have to move between these places. They just get caught all the time. So mm. but yeah, so that's that. Yeah, yeah. And I I definitely I've definitely heard a lot about that triangle migration. So when I interviewed Frank Garrida, he was Costa Rican and worked on whales and talked about the exact same triangle. So it seems that maybe several large sea marine like marine species must use the same migration route. Like right? Yeah, for sure. It's a, yeah, it's like it's a, it's a very specific highway and actually a lot of megafauna. So turtles, whales, and sharks, they use the same route to move around. That's so yeah, so it's cool. the same. It's like yeah, their own highway, their own underwater highway. Yeah, yeah, because I remember in that episode it was like 50 episodes ago. What? That's freaking crazy. Because I actually went to went to Costa Rica and actually got to meet Frank and everything, which was really, really cool. Because that, um, oh my God, I don't, maybe, you, maybe you know what it's called. I totally forgot. But that whole area was just protected. Like it just happened. That whole like Triangle Highway had just gone under protection for like international waters from like where it went like from the Ecuador down to Costa Rica. Like that whole area had just been put under some sort of really high strict protection which was yeah really like, incredible like this, this year the beginning the beginning of this year so end of last year beginning of this year an extra 66 so sixty thousand kilometers square was added to the existing galapagos marine reserve and that actually connected the cocos island reserve with the galapagos marine reserve so they're now kind of connected but governments are still working and putting in place all the all the protection and the monitoring the patrolling system and all the strategies are yet to be determined like they're still working on that but yeah it was recently declared like the expansion of the reserve it's called right 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 that's good news yeah incredible news i mean especially for for your sharkies here If you'd like to hear more about Thresher Sharks with Cami or the power of shark conservation tourism with Frida, dive into the archives and check out episodes 110 and 116. Thank you for joining me on this wild adventure today. I hope you've been inspired by the incredible stories, insights, and knowledge shared in this episode. To learn more about what you heard, be sure to check out the show notes at rewildology.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation and want to stay connected with the Rewildology community, hit that subscribe button and rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. I read every comment left across the show's platforms and your feedback truly does mean the world to me. Also, please follow the show on your favorite social media app, join the Rewildology's Facebook group, and sign up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter. In the newsletter, I share recent episodes, the latest conservation news, opportunities from across the field, and updates from past guests. If you're feeling inspired and would like to make a financial contribution to the show, head on over to rewildology.com and donate directly to the show through PayPal or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. Remember, rewilding isn't just a concept, it's a call to action. 
Whether it's supporting a local conservation project, reducing your own impact, or simply sharing the knowledge you've gained today, you have the power to make a difference. A big thank you to the guests that come onto the show and share their knowledge with all of us, and to all of you, Rewildology listeners, for making the show everything it is today. This is Brooke signing off. Remember, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>